Welcome to Infection Prevention Spotlight with Certified Infection Control Nurse, Kara Mullane. Welcome to the Research Behind Infection Prevention, where Dr. Mohamed Yassin provides tough questions to top researchers and leaders in the field. This podcast is a collaboration between Infection Prevention Spotlight and the American Journal of Infection Control. If you're interested to find out more about these topics, please do go to the July 2020 edition of AGIC. So today, we have the pleasure to hear from Dr. Leah Brown from Vanderbilt University Medical Center as she discusses her research on hospital privacy curtains in the ICU. We'll also be sharing the summary of two letters to the editor submitted by Dr. Curtis Donsky and his colleagues from the Cleveland VA and Case Western Reserve University. So please, stay tuned. I am pleased to share the summary from Dr. Muhammad Yassin on this major article, Revisiting the Leading Edge of Hospital Privacy Curtains in the Medical Intensive Care Unit by Dr. Leah Brown of Vanderbilt University Medical Center et al. This paper from AGIC, July 2020, addresses the bacterial load of privacy curtains and their potential role as reservoirs of bacterial pathogens. This is a pilot study in the intensive care unit, including eight disposable curtains from patients' rooms four in contact precautions, and four in non-contact precautions. The aim of the study is the type and bacterial load on different parts of the curtain. The question is raised based on previous research showing the potential implication of curtains in multidrug-resistant organism infection and colonization. The authors hypothesize that edge of the curtain is more relevant to bacterial transmission. The edges and middle sections of the curtains were sampled for cultured on patient and staff sides. A total of 48 samples were obtained per curtain. The microbiology plates were stamped with 2.5 centimeters squared of both sides of the curtains. The authors identified Staph aureus, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, numerous gram-negative bacteria, including Acentobacter, Enterobacter, Pseudomonas, and Klebsiella. In addition, two molds, including Aspergillus and Zygomites. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for your interesting work. We have a few questions to highlight the most important lessons learned from your work. So thank you so much for taking the time to answer our questions. And here we go. So question one, curtains which had just been replaced were excluded. Would you comment on the average time of use prior to testing the curtains? Our institution complies with the CDC guidelines, which recommend to exchange curtains when they are visibly dusty or soiled. And in speaking with epidemiologists at our institution, the curtains likely had been in place for months prior to this experiment. Well, would you think there is a specific duration after which curtains should be changed to minimize bacterial colonization? So there have been studies that showed recently exchanged curtains can become colonized in a matter of days to weeks. Um, However, I don't know that we have enough data to recommend the frequency of exchange or duration for certain curtains. I personally am in favor of eradicating curtains completely from the hospital and to consider alternative privacy options. But this is, of course, just my personal opinion. Now, moving on to question three. The finding of fungal elements is certainly interesting. You mentioned that there were no major construction projects during the study. Any explanation of the finding and the thoughts about its significance? Yes. 
So initially, the presence of fungal organisms on all curtains came as a surprise, but that was primarily because I had been more focused on bacterial colonization and transmission, given the fact that fungi are also a component of skin flora and that their spores are so easily aerosolized. It ultimately came as no surprise that they were so diffusely colonizing these curtains. The reason that construction projects increase the risk of fungal dissemination and infection in general is because of the aerosolization of fungal spores, but this can certainly occur by more conventional means such as air vents and water supplies that are present in all intensive care units. I think given the fact that the number of immunocompromised patients is rising and the number of immunocompromised patients that are being hospitalized and brought into the intensive care unit, be their immunocompromised status from chemotherapy or transplant immunosuppression, HIV, or a relative immunosuppression from a non-infectious cause like diabetes. I think that the presence of fungal organisms on all curtains sampled raises more concern that these curtains and other solid surfaces are serving as a nidus for infection. And, you know, given that our diagnostics for fungal infection often lack sensitivity and and often in a timely manner or in a time-insensitive manner, it does make me wonder if we are overlooking many fungal infections that perhaps did originate from solid surfaces like these curtains. Very interesting. Something for all of us to think about. Now moving on to question four. Your study showed no statistical difference in colony-forming units, or CFUs, between contact precautions and non-contact precautions at both patient and staff sides. Would you comment on the results? One of the intriguing curiosities that we encountered in preparation for this study was that either outcome yielded clinically relevant insight. If there is a significant difference in colony-forming units between the edge of the curtain and the middle of the curtain, then perhaps our efforts should be directed toward the section of the curtain that is both most frequently touched and most highly colonized. If, on the other hand, there was no significant difference, then perhaps the entire curtain should remain the focus because colonization is not directly correlated with curtain contact. In our study, if you isolate the analysis based on the side of the curtain, there was no statistically significant difference in colony-forming units. And when considered in conjunction with the isolation of staphylococcal species in the middle of the curtain, which were more frequently touched during procedures and other circumstances with high risk of infection transmission to the patient. This leads me to believe that the middle of the curtain should not be ignored. However, when comparing all curtain edges to all curtain middles, there was a statistically significant difference in colony forming units with the edge having a higher CFU in most cases. And this is best visualized in the heat map in in figure two in my study. I think ultimately all curtains are colonized and we are touching all curtains. Dr. Brown, the curtain edges in your study have statistically higher CFUs as compared to the middle of the curtain. You suggested that this could be related to touching the edges more frequently. Do you have any specific advice to reduce the risk of contamination? That the patient side of the curtain was more highly colonized than the staff side does raise suspicion that these organisms are transmitted to the curtain shortly after patient contact. And that the staff side, which is frequently touched shortly after hand hygiene, was less highly colonized, does seem to support that hand hygiene plays a major role in minimizing contamination. What we found in the pilot study was healthcare workers often pulled back the curtain after sanitizing their hands, but before touching the patient upon entering the room. 
and then would pull back the curtain before sanitizing their hands, but after touching the patient upon leaving the room. So again, I think hand hygiene plays a major role in this. Of course, this is not new information. This is not a new recommendation. But when working toward any sort of epidemiological effort to minimize infection, practicality and ease of compliance has to be considered. And increasing hand hygiene compliance is certainly one of the low-hanging fruit for minimizing contamination. I think hand hygiene before and after patient contact as well as before and after curtain contact is advisable or not touching the curtain with your hands at all. There are many researchers also looking into privacy curtains that are embedded with antimicrobial properties or lined with an antimicrobial liner that could also prove useful. Yes, thank you for that. Hand hygiene is a significant player in all this contamination, it seems. So on to our final question, Dr. Brown. Disposable curtains in your study had lower CFUs of relevant bacteria than on previous reports. Do you recommend them as opposed to wash curtains? I don't necessarily think that disposable curtains should be recommended as opposed to washed curtains. The type of curtains used really has to be feasible for the cost of the curtain and the maintenance required and what's available at each institution. It is possible that disposable curtains are more frequently or more easily exchanged, thereby reducing the time that bacterial and fungal organisms have to grow on curtains. It's also possible that disposable curtains are made with materials less conducive to microbial growth and colonization, in which case perhaps these would be recommended. It's also important to know that the data collection methods for my study were very distinct and different from the data collection methods of of prior studies, and that is likely playing a bigger role in this than the, the materials of the curtain altogether. I certainly think more data is needed before making this recommendation one way or the other. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brown. I know I'll be thinking about this next time I go into a patient's room and pull back those privacy curtains. So thank you so much for all your insight and your wonderful work with infection prevention. Let's take a look at Letters to the Editor and Summary by Dr. Mohamed Yassin. It's not the heat, it's the humidity. Effectiveness of rice cooker steamer for mask decontamination and steam treatment for rapid mask decontamination. Letters submitted to the American Journal of Infection Control by Dr. Curtis Donsky and colleagues from Cleveland VA and Case Western University. Mask decontamination and reuse of N95 respirators is not recommended, but is considered in crisis situations. Mask decontamination using hydrogen peroxide vapor received emergency use authorization for respirator decontamination from the Food and Drug Administration, FDA. This requires transfer to a processing area with a lot of logistical issues that make this process hard to perform and a long turnaround time. The development of rapid decontamination at the point of care between each reuse would be very beneficial to reduce the risk associated with reuse of N95 respirators. The two manuscripts reviewed address the effectiveness of -of point-of-care decontamination. In both manuscripts, the masks are contaminated with methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA, Geobacillus sterothermophilus spores, and non-enveloped single-stranded RNA virus bacteriophage, MS2. 10 microliter aliquots containing 10 to the 6th 
colony-forming units, or plaque-forming units, of the test organisms suspended in 8% simulated mucus were inoculated onto 1 centimeter squared areas on both the outer or inner surfaces of the respirators and face masks. The inoculated respirators and masks were subjected to 100 degrees Celsius for 10 and 30 seconds. The steamer has overlog reduction for MRSA as compared to 2-log reduction for dry heat. The bacteriophage MS2 has over 5-log reduction for the steamer, while dry heat was not effective. This was more effective than UV disinfection, which is less effective and uneven surface. 20 cycles of steam did not adversely affect the performance of respirators or masks. There was a minimal difference between 10 and 30 seconds of steam application on organism log reduction. Notes from Dr. Yassin. These two letters published in the American Journal of Infection Control, July 2020, highlight the importance of practical, simple solution for improving the safety of healthcare workers. It is clear that extended use or reuse is not without risks. Frequent, reliable decontamination of respirators using steam, rice cooker, could improve the safety and satisfaction of healthcare workers. Decontamination is not equal to sterilization, but the availability and the speed of the process could be very effective. Point-of-care decontamination could easily avoid major delay in processing and logistics concerning collection and redistribution of masks. Appropriate documentation of successful decontamination of respirators and calibration of the steamer is essential for regular use. And finally, the development of -of point-of-care devices could also improve decontamination of other personal protective equipment as paper hoods or face shields or goggles. So thank you so much, Dr. Donsky and his colleagues for giving us so much to think about as we all try to keep our healthcare workers safe. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you want to find out more, please do go to the July 2020 edition of AGIC to read the full article and letters to the editor. From the American Journal of Infection Control, and Infection Prevention Spotlight. Thank you for all you do to prevent infections. Take care, and please remember, wash your hands.